Hi everyone, I'm Harmony and thanks for tuning in today to the Finding Harmony podcast. Uh, This episode, before we get started, comes with a trigger warning for some listeners. The events depicted here contain violence, drug use, and adult-themed topics and language. So some listeners might find the accounts retold uh, particularly disturbing or distressing. We want to encourage you to practice self-care and also seek out the appropriate resources to help support you if needed. Also, if there happens to be other small little listeners around or sensitive ears, please be sure to use your headphones when listening to this episode as it is not intended for children. So I know you're going to love it and I want to get started right away. Thanks again for tuning in. Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so excited to introduce our next guest today, uh, Michael Case. This is Russell's mother. Well, I'm I'm very excited to introduce you. I know that the two of you have met before. Uh, she is now also um, your mother-in-law. Yeah. But I wanted to introduce you to uh, your listeners, and so I just want to say this is uh, on the phone with us today, Michael Carroll Hicks, Fructor Case Thorgerson Lidor. Is that correct? Oh heavens. Uh, That's a lot of names. Yeah, I don't use half a dozen of those, nor do I I actually um, put claim to more than a couple. You don't acknowledge a a several. I don't don't actually, as you know very well, acknowledge several of those, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ma, uh, you are, uh, to me... You're always in my mind something fabulous, but also tragic. And I just wanted to give a, a brief, oh. inter- a kind brief like a introduction. Hero- kind of like a heroine, right? A he- with an E. A on heroine. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a tragic, a Greek hero. Hero, a tragic oh. Greek. Yeah. yeah we don't uh, ask for anything more. Yeah. It's only boomers that use these uh, gender uh, nouns, but that's fine. So, um, oh. <laughs> uh, so Ma, you are uh, founder and CEO of the uh, largest urology recruitment firm in the country. True. Which is amazing. Uh, you were born a Swedish Lutheran girl uh, in Illinois and mm-hmm. moved uh, to Chicago to attend Michael Reese Nursing School. Which is for- a, Jewish, a Jewish hospital. Or was, yes. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, that explains a lot, actually. You were there for a short time before (laughs) converting to Judaism and marrying... After Catholicism. After Catholicism and and married uh, Cy Fruchter. You started a a radio station and promoted rock concerts like uh, Joe Cocker and Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. You had a Mm -hmm. son, uh, David. It's probably... Uh, one son too many. You later you later married oh. you later oh, married always has been a problem, but go ahead. You later married uh, my father uh, William Case. Uh, you were entrepreneurial. Uh, I believe you share a felony federal record for distribution, though yours was uh, no 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 that's been expunged. It was expunged. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, you became later uh, exactly. an executive. Hmm? We, we really try not to mention that in case anyone's no. listening. No, no, we're moving right on. <laughs> you became uh, you you became ex- uh, executive economic developer across the Midwest and mm-hmm. married uh, Phil Thorgerson, who is a a, bi- a bipolar fighter pilot and Vietnam veteran. Uh, who would often say that he had personally killed over 25 human, hundred human beings. Mm. Uh, that's, the one I, that's the one I don't acknowledge. Just mm. for, you know, general. <laughs> yeah. 
you, because I married him under false pretenses, and mm, I don't think and that should count. As it, it doesn't as, count. It yeah. doesn't you, count. Right? You then married. Know. You then <laughs> married the fabulous uh, James Lidor. Uh, Letterer, the lead, forgive me, the lead singer for the Womack Brothers, and that is where you founded your company in Austin, Texas. Correct. Correct. And yes. finally, you are authorized to teach Ashtanga Yoga Level One by Saraswati Joyce. No, I'm not authorized to teach anything. <laughs> no, she so authorized my, you to teach the Surya Namaskar. My my distinguish the, the the thing that distinguishes me in the Ashtanga community is that as someone who could just barely finish sun salutations, went to India, paid an extraordinary amount of money to take Saraswati's <laughs> class, and she gave me five postures the first day. So yeah, that there. was amazing. Yeah, that was that fantastic. Was, yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> you made you made several trips to India. Two. Uh, two. Me too. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's, it's a fabulous life. Uh, mm. I remember uh, hearing that Allen Ginsberg had uh, bounced your son, David on his knee. Uh, it was prior to David being born and what you were he hearing bounced, about his You body bounced parts, you on his knee. What you know <laughs> what you heard about his body parts was that he had the smelliest feet I had ever seen. No, smelled. no, mom mom, that's oh, Ken Casey. What? Oh, that was Ken who Casey. Wrote, Sorry. Who yes. wrote uh One his Flew book, Over the Cuckoo's book, Nest. One Flew Over Yes, yes. And so you're really not a hippie. Are you? I was always an entrepreneurial hippie, and um, some people kind of think that those two things don't go together. I always thought they went together quite well, but um, because uh, hippies but, are dirty. Well, you know, honestly, you know, I mean, just uh, I mean, to be serious for a second, you know, at the time that the hippies were around, they were really considered by those of us who were radicalized. Um, that the hippies were really considered slackers um, in the time. And, and, and they were not, they were kind of, you know, um, scrounging for food and living in big groups of people together without showers. And I, I never really, I never really considered myself a hippie, but I did consider myself radical. And thus our radio show was named Radio Free Chicago. And and working on that radio show was, were the were members from Chicago Seed, which was the radical Chicago newspaper at the time, and also working on the uh, every night we had to, uh, each night of the of the week we had a different group put, um, acting as DJ. One night we had, like I said, Chicago Seed. One night we had uh, a um, radical women's uh, lesbian co-op group which <laughs> schooled the Chicago Seed members and um, really did a really excellent job on that. And um, very funny stories uh, with that. And, and then we also had a, a DJ. We had a couple of, of just single DJs on there. Did, did you know the Chicago, the Chicago 8, then the Chicago 9, is it? We were there at the time they were there, but we didn't know them. <laughs> In fact, I wanted a, to go down. tight... That's a tight Jewish community in Chicago of radicals. Well, yeah, I would say, I would say so. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, because the, because the music and the politics and, and the, and the sexual relationships were all intertwined at that time. I mean, you know, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. So you had your, so you had everybody, you see, you had those things all happening. And so they knew each other either through the politics or through the music, um, uh, or through relationships. So it was, it was pretty tight. Although, I mean, we were best friends with, um, a number of, of Jewish people in Chicago at that time who had moved their following college at university of Michigan, friends of size, and they were anything but radical. I mean, anything but radical. So you know, there's always, <laughs> well, they smoke pot, you know, but they but they weren't out demonstrating. And um, but everybody at University of Michigan at those times. I remember one time walking into the law at the University of Michigan. They had this great big, uh, was, oh my, big. They called the quad, and uh, it had the law school there and all these buildings around a, a central kind of square. 
And if you went into the law school dormitories, just walking in, you would get stoned. I mean, it was thick with, thick with hot <laughs> but smoke. But that's, <laughs> that's what Lenny Bruce said, that to the reason that pot will be um, uh, legalized in 20 years is because all of the law students he knew were smoking pot, smoking grass. Yeah, but you have to also consider what he missed, I think, is the fact that all of those law students put in a lot of time and a lot of money to become attorneys. And then once they were making money, they didn't want to lose their income or their career by professing to professing their use of pot. So everybody shut up and nobody talked about it anymore until now, until like the last five, 10 years, you know, now people are saying, Oh yeah, legalize, legalize pot. But that was once everyone had already made their money and were retiring. (laughs) What year was this that you were in Chicago? uh, um, I was, I, I started nursing school in Chicago in 65 64 in the fall of 64 and um i was i was there i moved back to chicago from i had been living in ann arbor where i met uh, where i met cy fructure i moved first husband first husband father of of dave we moved back in 60 see we got married in 68 so it'd be like 69 i think Yes. In 69, we moved back to Chicago then in 69. And that's when we had, well, let me ask you this, because I'm, I'm terrible with years. Um, so what was the year that Woodstock was on? What was the year? 69. Yeah, 69. Okay, so, okay, so we moved there in 60, in 68 then, the year before Woodstock. That, you had all of the Woodstock bands in Chicago before they went to Woodstock. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, before what I... What I want to talk about, because um, there's a, there's so much stuff to dig into, and there's so much fabulous stuff to dig into. Um, but I really wanted to to start with a tragedy. Mm. Um, and what I remember about this is it was 1980, and we were in Illinois with uh, my father Bill and David. Uh, uh, was with us. And uh, I think I must have been five, I think, if it was 1980. Mm-hmm. And I I don't really know how to, to describe this, but for me, as a four or five-year-old, it was uh, really exciting. It was incredibly exciting to wake up in the house, and it was, it was just... Um, you know, riddled with cops. There were cops all over the house. Mm-hmm. The The bedroom had been upended. The bed was, was on its side. Mm. And it was just, it was amazing to me what, what had happened. Mm. And I remember talking to you and mm-hmm. you had explained to me that, that someone had been in the house and gotten into a knife fight with my dad. And I thought that was amazing. Like, wow, dad was in a knife fight. And I, I just wanted to know if, I mean, which is incredible that you were knowing what I know now, you know, capable of still parenting me in a positive way. And I just, I just want to know if, if you could talk about what happened. Yeah, you know, I can. I think it's always interesting to hear people's memories of things because people experience things differently, number one, and and we can never really know what how someone else experiences the same thing that we're experiencing at the same time and place. So it's it's interesting to hear your memory of that. Um, to put it in to put it quickly in context, this was the year following the publication and and of um, Truman Capote's book in cold blood and for those of you who don't remember who, do, who don't aren't familiar with that book because it was obviously 1980 um, that was a book that Truman Capote wrote it was a true story about um, a couple of guys that that broke into a family's home and um, tied them up and killed them 
So it was a book that I had read and it had a, a deep impact on me. Um, and this was like a few months after I'd read the book. So actually what had happened was there was a, a serial rapist who they referred to as a gentleman rapist, as if there could be rapists who are gentlemen. Um, but um, he had been breaking into homes and raping the women following the train tracks through that part of the country. And I hadn't known that, uh, but, but he had been doing that. I think um, so that evening, uh, Bill and I had been out dancing and we had returned home and you guys were asleep in the bedroom. Um, we had, well, you, you, you had a babysitter? Yes. Okay. <laughs> no, we just left you there alone and took the talk. You know? <laughs> it's the, eight, you know, the 70s. <laughs> so much for parenting. I mean, you're, yeah, you, that's know, what... you know, you know, <laughs> I find it amazing that you think I was parenting you well following that because I was, I was in kind of a blur following that for, for a while. But in any case, um, um, he had broken into, he had, we had come home. We had, uh, we lived two and a half miles outside of a very small town of 7,500 people up on a hill. And, and as such, we didn't, we didn't often lock our doors. And, and we had come home from, from, um, from dancing and had gone to bed. And the next thing I realized um, we'd gone to bed was waking up to the bedroom door opening. And I was lying on my side facing that, side of the room and the bedroom door opened and cause we had, our lights had been left on and, um, and, uh, I saw a gun come in through the door. Uh, it was black. <laughs> I will remember that. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, the, the incident of something happening like that is just kind of, is kind of almost non accepting because it's outside your, experience and so there was no reason to expect that someone would come in with a gun or that a gun would come in by itself or anything like that and so, so I saw that gun I was like oh my god you know it was like this can't really be happening and um and the guy came in with with a gun and um he and he he uh I don't know how much, I don't know how, do you want me to just, I don't know how much detail you're looking for. Yeah, keep going. What did he do? Uh, what did he do when so, he walked in? Well, he, um, he, he came in and he um, uh, tied up Bill and he. With, with a uh, gun in one hand and he rope in the other? Like, I think, well, so what he did was he made me stand over in a corner and it was, yeah. So he made me stand over by the dresser uh, and um, he kept the gun on Bill so that if I were to do anything, he could have shot Bill right as he was doing what he was doing. I, at that point, you know, it's just a little, I, this is something I have thought about for very many years. So I, I don't remember exactly how he managed to tie him up with his gun on him, but, but I was standing there next to the dresser. My mother, a few months earlier, who was a private detective had given me a bottle of mace, a can, a can of mace. And it was right on the dresser next to me, but she had actually given it to me like over a year before that. It was right on the dresser next to me. And I'm looking at the mace and I'm looking at this guy tying up Bill. And I'm thinking, about the mace. And I'm thinking if I pick this up and I spray it at him, what do I think his response is going to be? And at the moment that I, while I was thinking about it, he hadn't shot anyone. He hadn't seemed very crazy other than the fact that that kind of a behavior is rather crazy, but he, he hadn't seemed like, like he could talk to him. He just, he didn't seem terribly crazy. Um, what, and so I was, was concerned. The, what was the quality of his voice? I mean, was it low? Was it? Oh, it was low. It was low. He's a really big, tall man, mm. bulky man with black shoes. And he was, he had a full 
He had a full Halloween mask on. Whoa. Whoa. And, um, and I, so I'm looking at the mace and I'm thinking about spraying him with the mace so we can escape. And I was concerned that if I sprayed him with the mace, that he, he would respond to the, you know, the stinging burning in his eyes and not being able to see by shooting. And I had, and in the bedroom next to ours were my two small sons and they were asleep. You guys were asleep. And he didn't, as far as I knew, didn't even know you guys were there necessarily. Um, and I certainly didn't want to bring it to his attention. I didn't want him to think about you guys at all. Right. And so I thought about the mace and I was trying to judge whether it would be, whether I would keep my family safer by spraying him or by not spraying him. And plus I wasn't sure it would work because it was over a year old. And so I'm all those thoughts are going through my mind and he tied Bill up and then he asked me uh, uh, where my purse was. And when he asked me that, I knew in that moment, and I knew I was worried about it up to that point, but I knew in that moment that he wasn't after my purse, but was rather intent upon raping. And um, my purse was out in the living room. So that's what I told him. And so he made me go out in the living room. And, um, and I had heard uh, that you should... Make sure that if you're attacked, that you should make sure that a person personalizes you. You shouldn't be a subject or an object. You should be. You should make him personalize you, and that that would keep you safer. So I'm talking to him. I'm trying to talk to this guy, you know, and uh, and uh, and he just told me to shut up, and he and he grabbed me by the neck and uh, against the wall, and grabbed me by the neck and. Um, if there's one thing I'm terrified of, totally terrified of, it's rodents and strangulation. Are those two things actually? <laughs> not one thing. Rodents and strangulation. Not necessarily in that order. Not necessarily in that order, but they're pretty close there because you know, as Russell will tell you, I was terrified of their guinea pig when they were little, like you know. So, um, but you, I, you, you, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't touch the guinea pig. So, so anyway, so I was like. Um, so I was like, oh, my God, you know, I was terrified he's going to strangle me. I was like, and it just like, okay. And at that point, at that point in time, you have lots of options. You have lots of options. You know, you can scream. You can shout no, 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 after he's already told you not to do that. You can kick him as hard as you can. You can try to put your knee in his groin. You can do that. You can become absolutely acquiescent, um, and you and and you have choices. I think I don't know if everyone has a choice, but I certainly had choices in that moment about how I would respond, and how I decided to respond was to become acquiescent. The instant that the instant I decided that, I also understood that I was unable to deal with what was happening. I, I honestly could not. I knew that it was beyond my capability to handle it, to deal with it, to cope with it. I didn't know what was going to happen in the absence of being able to cope with it in the moment. And I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about in that very instant. I was. I knew I was unable to cope with it. I couldn't handle it. It was uh, too horrifying. It was too frightening. It was too over the top. I couldn't, I couldn't cope with it. And so leave your body in in a way. Did you? Well, so what I did was I decided I, I, I was like, my mind was searching frantically and I, I'd always been able to think pretty quickly. I could do it better then than I can today. <laughs> and I was thinking as quickly as I could. And I decided that I would, uh, I, I would treat this. I would, I, I would, 
I would add in my own experience of this, I would experience this as a hooker would experience being with a John. Right. And that was where I went. That was where I went. It was, it was um, not anything I'd ever done before, but it was certainly something I'd read a lot about mm-hmm. and um, had seen on television and had feelings about, I had judgment about it. And I, and I thought if I thought of him, instead of thinking of him as a potential, as someone who could potentially kill me, if I thought of him instead as a, as a John, that, that I would have some control mm-hmm. because, because in my mind, at least a, a hooker is someone, she takes money for it. She's yes, he's using her, but yes, she's using him. And so, and so there's control in it. And obviously I didn't go through this long thought process in my mind. It was just what it was. And so I decided that's how I was going to think about it. And that's exactly how I thought about it. And um, I don't know if I could have handled it if there had been intercourse, but there, what he wanted was a head job. So I, that was, that was um, in, in that, with that thought process. I was capable of getting through it in that moment later, not so much, but in that moment, in that moment, I got through it. And so, so when he, when he was finished, he marched me back into the bedroom, down the hallway in front of me was the door to the boys room. And to my right was the bedroom that I shared with Bill. So I'm walking down the hallway with this guy behind me with this gun. He has this gun again. And, and I'm thinking he's done, and all I want is him out of here. And um, and I looked. I could see the bedroom before he could because he was behind me. And I saw that Bill had freed himself from his from his uh, ropes, and he was um, behind the doorway with a knife, um, waiting for us. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't know, you know, I've never asked Bill if he's ever forgiven me for this. Um, but I, uh, it had, I think, a terrible effect on him. But I, I, it was my choice, and it was my children, and and I decided in the moment that I thought we could get this get this guy gone without anyone being hurt. Right. But if I marched into that room and Bill was there with a knife and attacked him, which Bill was going to do. The one thing Bill always had was a lot of courage. Um, If I let that happen, uh, people were going to get hurt. And, and if there was screaming, then my children would wake up and they could get hurt. And I decided not to let that happen. And so I told Bill Bill, um, nothing's going to happen. Put the knife down. Don't, don't, don't attack him with that knife. Right. So that your attacker could hear you say that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then what happened? So the attacker told him to go to put the knife down and go lie down on the bed or he would shoot me. Mm -hmm. And so Bill did that. And, um, he, um, he then put me in the closet, closed me in the closet. And while I was in there and I could see him, he tied Bill up again. And then he came for me. Was Bill quiet? Was he like frothing, uh, you know, cuss words? Like, was he just steady? No, he was steady. He was totally steady. That's him. That is him. I was going to say, he never lacked in courage, ever. You know, he, he always, he responded faster than anyone I've ever known and, and to any kind of thing that came up, whether it was a tipping over a canoe, you know, or anything. I mean, he was, he didn't, he wasn't 
inhibited by by thinking about things first. He just acted. Mm-hmm. And um, what? One time, I don't know how you know when I'm about to talk. Um, uh, one time, we were uh, driving together in the Upper Peninsula in the mountains, and uh, we were on a cliff face, and it was a sheer cliff on the other side of of the of the of the road, you know. Mm-hmm. And we went into a hydroplane, and I felt it, uh, mm-hmm. and I was I was uh, totally panicked inside. Mm-hmm. And but I felt him in that moment, like totally, like he knew we're hydroplaning, and he didn't move. He just slightly turned out of the hydroplane. We mm-hmm. were there about ten, fifteen seconds, mm-hmm. and it was over. Mm-hmm. And he father. didn't. He didn't say a thing about it. And I said to him, "Is like, so that's what you do." He said, "Yeah, you just stay. You just stay cool." yeah yeah absolutely um yeah i i always felt very safe with him i always felt very safe with him um uh we had a really bad accident when i was carrying you when you were when i was pregnant with you and we were in a little porsche that i hit i was a little Brand, practically brand new Porsche, yeah. And we were we were following a. Um, You've been a given police. that Porsche by like some mobbed up oh, guys. Heavens, the seventh. <laughs> oh, we're gonna, I'm sorry. We're nobody, nobody, nobody schizophrenic. Nobody <laughs> schizophrenic. <laughs> no mobbed up guys at that point. And there, that was a different. There, that was a different story. But anyway, so yeah. So we, but we were in this Porsche. We were following this police car that was following a semi truck when um, uh, uh, he had pulled out to pass and so had the police car and we were going to pass the semi and it was a, and it was, uh, and it was at night and it was raining. And, and when we did this drunk woman pulled out coming the other way and came and came head on at the police car. And um, so the police car had kind of, veered to the left to try to avoid this woman and bill was driving and he he gunned it he did not slam on he gunned it and he he tried to slide through the between the police car and the semi and he made it right up to the front of the semi when when we all ended up stopping everyone was wearing seatbelts nobody was hurt and and it was this big crash. He was just that's just Bill though. He just responds, you know. He's um, yeah. Well, back to to this this morning, this night. Oh, I guess um, Bill had been locked into the 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 trunk of this of the Pontiac. Yeah, the guy, the guy the guy brought us out. He he brought he made us go back out of the house. Um, Bill with his hands tied behind him, and he made us go out to the back out to the driveway and um, where our car was and opened the trunk. And um, was it and a Pontiac told, Sunbird? It was a Pontiac Sunbird, a little brown yeah. Pontiac Sunbird. Yeah, little tiny. And he, and he um, told Bill to get in the trunk and he told me to get in the trunk. And I said, no, I wasn't going to get in that trunk because as far as I was concerned, if I got in that trunk, I didn't know when anybody would be able to find us or if we'd be able to get out. So I wasn't getting into the trunk. And, and so, and I, I remember intentionally making myself sound a little hysterical about it. Um, but I wasn't feeling hysterical. I was feeling very, very cold about it. I was not getting in that trunk. And Bill told the guy, listen, he said, she's, she's afraid of small spaces. She just, she won't, she's afraid of small spaces. She won't get into this trunk. Mm-hmm. and he I mean he picked up on my whole argument you know and yeah. so the guy locked Bill in the trunk and took me back in the bedroom put me in the closet and told me and uh told me not to and, and push kind of a dresser in front of it and told me not to move you know for half an hour and then he left so um so he left and I got out and I got Bill out and we went to a neighbor's and we called the police who arrived and they arrived, and I still had not told anyone what had happened to me, and Bill didn't know. Um, and, and I realized I was going to have to tell someone 
what had happened to me. And that's, you know, Russ, you and I were talking last week about, about um, how we, what kind of effects that, that events can have on your life. Yeah. And um, that was the first of the effects that the event had had on me was I did not want to tell anyone what had happened to me. And I couldn't say the word, and I didn't know how to tell anyone because it was too outside the pale. It was too dramatic. It was too bizarre that that had happened. And I, I, it, was, it was so unreal. It was just so horrific that I, I couldn't at first tell anyone. And then I told them. And then all the things you hear about began to happen. You know, all of the, all of the numerous detectives that want to hear all the juicy details and um, and the the CEO at the little hospital where I worked called me into the office. I had taken a week off afterwards. Called me into the office and wanted to know if the my attacker had been someone I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, the newspaper where I had worked before I worked at the hospital and where I had friends wrote about it on the front page and used my name. Oh my gosh. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all the, all the things you hear about, you know, these terrible things you hear about, um, Mm -hmm. began to happen. And, and I was so traumatized by the whole thing to begin with. I, there was, I couldn't, I couldn't make myself sleep in the master bedroom after that. I, I just, it was a nice master bedroom and it had a nice bathroom and I moved into the little study where I I had been writing a book and um, that I used as a room for writing in and I moved in there by myself and, and uh, I, because I just, I couldn't bear, I I couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep anyway. I was terrified of closing my eyes and for weeks afterwards. I felt like I was in a walking nightmare and I moved in. So I moved in there and, and Bill took it as I think a personal uh, lack of confidence in him or a lack of that. I didn't want to be with him. Right. And uh, I, it wasn't really that at all. I, I certainly didn't want to have sex with anyone for a long time, but I didn't, it wasn't that I, didn't want to be with him. I really just couldn't be in that room. And, uh, yeah, just couldn't do it. Um, but it also had this really magical feeling like this had happened to me because I'd been sinful. Went right back to my Lutheran roots, boy. Right. You know, and, uh, oh my God, you know, this, I partially brought this on myself by, by, uh, oh gosh, everything, you know, the, the kinds of fantasies I had when right. I would, mas- from the fantasies I would have when I would masturbate to the, to having been sinful in some way or another, or not been a good parent or not been a good wife or, oh, yeah, you the, know. the mind looks for reasons of, to try and make sense of why something happens. So it tries to it create meaning or, Mm-hmm. Where That's there exactly is no. right, Harmony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that you had you had said to me last week in our conversation was that this event uh didn't happen in a vacuum. Like you were already oh, right. fucked. You know, you you had mm-hmm. you had come out of a trauma and this was this is just an how did you phrase it? How did you how did you parse it, Mom? Oh, I, th- I think I said that, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, either that any, um, we were talking about life changing events and I was saying that it's hard to, it's hard to, to differentiate. It's hard to, it's hard to show that this particular event caused these things to happen in my life and caused me to be, to change my outlook on life or my perspective or changed me you know, for the rest of my life, I was this way, or for a long time, I was that way. It's really hard to separate the event itself from the condition you're in at the time that the event occurs. So at the time that that event occur, occurred, 
Um, I had come out of an abusive childhood. I had, as you know, um, I had, um, uh, I, I was back in the town. I had left that whole area to go away to school and then to go away to move to Ann Arbor and meeting Cy and moving to Chicago and, and had found myself in a situation where I had, um, uh, uh, started selling drugs, which was as a, as a boomer, not that uncommon among the people that I, that I knew <laughs> and, uh, and had, uh, and had experienced and had been arrested for it. And it was a really traumatic arrest in that the, the amount of drugs was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, drugs involved and there were a lot of police just like that night at the house and people pointing guns at you and pointing them at each other and weird stuff like that. And so I was like, I was like six months at the time. You were about six months old at that time. Yeah. I remember you told me you were hiding in the, in the closet with me, uh, but no, then decided to no, come out. No, no, no. I had made sure that you and, and, and your brother were not at the house when that. Oh happened. shit. I thought David was gone, but I was there. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't going to, no, I, I wasn't a very good, I wasn't being a very good parent in what I was doing, but I, I at least didn't have you at the house. Um, for the for that particular deal, yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay. so again, so anyway, what I was trying to say is that I was really try. I was a person experiencing a lot of PTSD, a lot of PTSD in my life at that point. And I was I'd been really traumatized and really was making a lot of fairly bad decisions about things. Um, doing my best at all times to be a good parent and a good and 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 to be able to support you guys and give you what I wanted you to have, which was a middle class lifestyle. But I but I um, was unable to do it as well as I could have been if I had been able to get a lot of therapy by that time. And I couldn't I was still really struggling. And then when that happened, that that trauma, that PTSD, you know, falling on top of what I was already, what I was already doing, uh, just put me into a, into a downward spiral, spiral psychologically that was, that, that probably took me 20 years to overcome. And not just because of the, the rape though, but because of everything combined. And then because it, after you, after you are affected by a life-changing event that is a negative life-changing event, you begin to make decisions that are or judgments that are not as good as they would have been before. So every time some you you're, you make a bad judgment, a bad decision, and and things get worse, you have you're you're less able to make better decisions as time goes on because the one bad decision adds to the next bad decision adds to the, the childhood trauma to everything. And you're just, you know, you're, you, you just add trauma and PTSD and bad decision one on top of another. And, um, and, and thus Russ, you know, you and I and Dave moved how many times as a child? I, I, I'm not a good, um, uh, source. Sor- I'm a, <laughs> I, uh, I'm an inveterate exaggerator, you yeah. know? So I like, just, yeah, I like telling a good story, but yeah. like, I'm going to yeah. say, I'm going to say, I'm going to go low and I'm going to I'm going to say <laughs> one to two times a year. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, I was always running away. I never yeah. felt as safe as I felt right after we had moved to a new place because no one knew me. And, and, um, I had a fresh start. And then as my life would begin to catch up with me, I would move again. And, um, and I was always trying to make more money in each move so I could justify it. You always want to justify those things. But, um, but yeah, one of the things that people with a lot of PTSD do is they run rather than like if you everyone has problems in their life all the time. There's a little trauma that you have to deal with, or your water heater gives out, or something happens. You know, it doesn't have to be very much if you have a lot of trauma. And and so 
rather than staying and dealing with it, coping with it, you know, having trouble in a job and rather than working with my boss to correct that trouble, I would go and get a better job you know, while I still had a job. Yeah, and fuck so, Let's go. <laughs> well, it was just, you know, no, it's like, okay. And I would have conversations with you guys. Okay, so how much money, how much more money do we have to make to make this move worthwhile? And we always decided that, that it was like 10% more would do it, you know? And so, yeah. okay, off we yeah. would go. I remember sitting at at kitchen mm-hmm. tables with you and a piece of paper yes. and a budget. Yes. It's yes, like, well, exactly right. what do you think? It's like, yeah, I don't like the people <laughs> at school anyway. Let's fucking exactly. get out of here. <laughs> exactly. And off we move to a new community and a nice house and da 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 right? And um, yeah, and so it was off we would go. And so 20 years of just like, you know, just running away, running away, running away, running away. And I think the only thing really that stopped me was meeting my present husband, Jim, and Jim saying to me, I, you know, if you want to be with me, just keep in mind, I will not move out of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> now, the two of you did something really, really interesting, and I'm oh, really my. impressed by it. Oh, my. Um, the two of you <laughs> bought... Uh, MDMA or ecstasy from my brother and went to town. And and I would, and I think that that with another, with some other kinds of intense personal couples therapy, the two of you were doing. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. But you you guys seem to kind of come out of it a little bit. Well, he didn't so much at the time, but I, he did later. Um, But, um, uh, I had been, I had been in therapy from the time I arrived here. Practically. I've been in therapy most of my life. Um, and sometimes if I, if we moved quickly, I didn't have time to get into a therapy therapeutic situation with anyone. And there were a lot of bad therapists out there, but I was, but I had, I was seeing a therapist here. We had started seeing a therapist for couples therapy, thinking about getting married. And then I continued on by myself with him. And, um, Alan, Alan, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. And, and, um, and I was working really hard at it. I was really working hard at it. I, and, um, and then I really got lucky. I just totally and completely got lucky because Alan, um, I was really experiencing something really, you know, really tough with Jim. We were going through a really rough patch and uh and jim is a lot like me in terms of his running away doesn't he doesn't do it geographically he does it he does it emotionally and mentally and um and so he had been hiding out most of his life too but just hiding in austin mm-hmm. and so um so uh we we weren't thinking about the about the ecstasy as a, as a therapeutic drug. But of course they use that now a lot, but I was in therapy at the time and we used it and, and it creates a safe place to talk to one another. Um, among other things. And mm-hmm. really safe. I mean, like totally safe. Like, 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 like you, you could, you can talk about things that otherwise you would be so concerned about, about uh, the other person being hurt and you know, they're not going to be hurt and you know, you're not, it's not painful for you to talk about it. So you can really talk about things and work through things. And right at that time, I think we had used it a couple of times. And, and when I went to Alan and Alan said, Hey, I want to try this new therapy on you. I want to try this um, EMDR. And, um, and so we spent a couple of sessions preparing for that. And then, and then, um, I did it with him and the EMDR and, um, it was life changing. It was totally and completely life changing. It gave Can me you my, describe it gave me my it? life it's, back. It's like a light pulse or something in your eyes. It's, it's, um, it's, um, you move your eyes very quickly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it creates a different kind of pathway in your brain, a physiological change. And while you're experiencing that, you're supposed to think of a place or a time. You're supposed to go back in time to a very, very traumatic 
time. And you're supposed to comfort yourself in that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and they use it at that time, at least they were using it a lot on soldiers that were coming back with PTSD um, and people that had been involved in like horrendous, you know, kinds of warlike situations and stuff. So, um, so I did it with, I did it and, you know, I always kind of describe it as prior to the EMDR, even with all the therapy I'd had, it was always like I, if you could imagine a stove uh, with four pots of boiling water, big pots of boiling water on that stove and the fire up high and you have three lids and you have and the fourth pot without a lid is boiling over. So you grab one of the lids, one of the other lids is on a different pot and you put it on that on that fire on that pot that's boiling over. And that goes down a little bit. But meanwhile, you've got another pot here that is still boiling over and it starts boiling over. So you grab another pot, another another lid and you slam it on that pot <laughs> and you never have enough lids to go around. And so your life is always, you know, um, like like a pot of boiling water boiling over and at, 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 and that heat is up all the way on 10 and your pot's boiling over and there's nothing. And so you learn a little bit in therapy how to how to um, uh, make it take longer before that pot boils over not to respond you know not not to react too quickly but you don't ever get the heat turned down you never get the heat turned down that heat's always fucking right up there <laughs> full speed and so so it's always tough so what happened with the EMDR was it turned the heat down low. It didn't turn it off, but it turned the heat down low. And then at that point, it allowed me to do the work I needed to do to learn how to manage my emotions and my mindset, my, my outlook, my perspective on things enough that I could create new pathways of thinking and feeling that were not destructive. And it, it was, took me a year after that, just jerking my mind away from those old comfortable pathways of destruction, self-destruction into this new healthier pathway. It took a year of really working hard every day, having to grab that mind and that emotion and pull it over here to a path I was trying to develop. And, um, and, uh, and of course, you know, I, there are still times that I can, there are still things that can still trigger me, but very few and very far between. And, um, just rodents. Different. <laughs> rodents. <laughs> Mom, rodents. you, you told me at the time that after the ecstasy and after the EMDR, you, you'd said that it was the first time that you'd felt joy Oh my in God. your heart in like mm -hmm. 30 fucking years. Oh, longer probably, Russ. You know, um, I was really joyful when I was married to Cy in the early days. Um, but prior to that time, my childhood was so unhappy. I, you know, and it, I mean, I went through a period of time in fifth grade where I didn't, I didn't smile for a full year. I mean, I, I, um, and so I you could smile. Again. I can smile. I can smile again. And so the and so the ecstasy, you know, takes the fear away, right? Um, and uh, and and I felt joy for the first time. Uh, and all I wanted to do was to do it over and over and over again because <laughs> joy is a good thing. Joy is a, joy is joy. <laughs> joy is really amazing. And um, uh, you know, fortunately, it's amazing. For me it doesn't work that way. So I didn't. I yeah. didn't get up with it. It's, it's amazing. It was amazing for me because it felt the way that you described it was really interesting because it, it felt the same way for me. It felt like I had a, um, a leash around my neck that prevented me from, from talking or asking for anything that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And it was like someone mm -hmm. had uh, taken the leash off of my throat and I could finally mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And it was so much for good parenting by your mother, huh? Yeah. I, yeah. No, I, I, it's <laughs> you and I, you and I, were, yeah. as mom, you and I were going through this together, as we've often said. Yeah, we, yeah that's, <laughs> true. that's so true. Yeah. And so I, I could speak and, and like, I could really start healing because I could, I could say, mm-hmm. you know, what my needs were and like, mm-hmm. like the Hendrix method, exactly. right. That you gave to me, like how to ask for the love that you need. Right. You could ask for it because you could fucking talk finally. Right. right. And then also like, I'd never thought that you, I needed to do ecstasy anymore because it was like, I could always feel it. Like it was right there. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. sense of joy was always just right. That the sensation of pleasure was, mm-hmm. was, yeah, I was there. So like, you know, why, you know, why do it again? I've, you've already taken the fucking leash mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Which mean, is why I, I fucking brothers, talk so much about everything. If I had, if I had my, if I had my druthers, as they would say, you know, if I had my druthers and I knew it wasn't going to give me a heart attack or a stroke or something, I would do it again. I would just, you know, tomorrow maybe, or tonight, I would start, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, it's just, it's, I, you know, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing sensation, you know, it's, you know, you and I, we, we were talking last week about you had kind of confused in your last, in your last, um, um, uh, oh, shoot, podcast? Uh, a podcast, you had mentioned that you had been, you had been soaked in, in, um, cocaine, in cocaine Opium. and, and that, and that when I when you were conceived, that I had had this opium dream that was with Jesus, and I, I had yeah. had to correct that, of course, because huh? Jesus was not there during. No, the, Jesus came to you when I was conceived. Later, no, not later. when you were conceived. Later, later, no. it was a, it was a thing that I that it was an experience that I had later, and 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 it was just out of out of nowhere. I had a dream. I woke up from a dream one night and experienced Christ saying to me. And in the dream, I was being chased. I was being chased, and I was terrified in my dream. And I woke up from the dream, and this voice said to me that I absolutely was completely certain was Christ saying to me, these are the things you must give up if you are to come to me. And I knew that what what I was being told was that I had to give up fear. I had to give up fear. And uh, it was... It was for 20 years something I totally and completely believed um, that it was Christ telling me that I had to give up fear. So fear had been this driving emotion, through a driving force in my whole life. And I think it is everyone's. You know, I think that sometimes to a greater or lesser degree and it has greater or lesser effects on us. But fear is fear. It, fear is is this terrible thing. And so when you, you know, and it, it makes you save money, which is a good thing. And it makes you you know courageous it makes you it makes you ambitious it makes you a good parent i mean lots of things that fear does that that are Mm -hmm. that are positive things but it also uh, has a lot of really negative effects on people and of course in your ptsd that's incredibly incredibly negative and destroys lives and so the thing about ecstasy is that it's the fear is gone, right? It doesn't like acid where you can become terrified and have a, you know, a terrible trip or, I mean, it's just, right. it's, just uh, it's just, you know, you're without fear. What a, what an amazing experience. And especially for someone who spent most and, of their life terrified. It was really, yeah. And, and, and that's why you started taking your Jewish children to, <laughs> to church. That's why. <laughs> it's amazing especially those unconscious fears how they drive us and how people who are really smart know how to play upon those unconscious fears to make us vote certain ways or buy certain products oh yeah yeah it's it's really incredible it's uh fear is such a powerful motivator it's probably the most powerful Peter. Yeah, it'll make him. It'll make a country kill all the Jews in the country, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's just oh, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing, and and you know, and and I think you know, there's no way in a lifetime to be without fear because the bottom line on it is that the thing that we fear most is death, and we all die. So, mm. you know, it 
that's that's um but then you know there's lots of other things to be afraid of too <laughs> like and, rodents uh, like rodents or like, like rodents. taking taking care of your children mommies <laughs> Oh, I'm with you. I don't or, like those rodents either. I think they're really creepy. It, it should start with the care and concern for your sons. But anyway, well, and you know, think about this, Russ. Seriously, think about this. Think about being, think about being a young woman who, without a, without any, without a college education, two years of nursing school, it didn't give her anything, and two children she loved above anything else on this on this planet, anything else in life and wanting absolutely the best things in life for them and not knowing how you're going to provide for them. That's scary. That's really, really scary. And that's, you know, that's, that's what a good part of the country now is. It's all these single mothers out there who have lost their jobs right now. That's what they're experiencing. While our blessed GOP is, is, you know, dithering about whether to give them too much money. Mm. I just <laughs> so just like look, so a big Sorry part of the GOP a big part of the GOP <laughs> makes up our listening audience. So I just want to be careful there. Okay. And okay. I also want okay. to say, like, to come out of that and to be a titan of industry yeah. is phenomenal, and it's it's incredibly emotional and dark to to talk about what happened. And I, I just can't say enough how proud I am of you. Oh, oh, Russell, you make your mama really teary. Mm. <laughs> He's teary <Yeah>. too. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. You know, you touched upon really some, some of the essence of yoga in your in your recovery, you know, the training of the mind to have new patterns to think new ways to create space between, um, you know, what's, what's happening around you and your reaction to it, to have a little space there be so you can respond in a new way. And then also this fear of death, you know, this, that drives us, that drives our desires or our aversions. And this abhinivesha, they say in uh, the yoga sutras, that's uh, inherent, you know, something we're born with, Basically, it's yeah. our innate tendency and how how the practice of yoga, the practice of training the mind or creating this space can help us to overcome this fear, these unconscious fears. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, what, you, what you've done through the therapy, through, you know, even the ecstasy, the opening of that mind, the connecting to your innate joy. I mean, because that joy isn't artificial. It's something that's in you that you, that you can connect to at any point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We just sometimes don't know how to do that. And we lose how to do that. Mm-hmm. And we need mm-hmm. things that help us find how to do that. And I think oh, it's really absolutely. beautiful that, yeah, you, you, f- you found the path back to yourself and, and then you built a whole new beautiful life. I was just really lucky, Harmony, really, really, really lucky. You know, uh, I've always my entire life through all of it, I always felt lucky. I felt lucky because I had my children. I felt lucky because I had God. I felt lucky because I, I just was very lucky that I was a pretty bright person. And, and, um, and, and that gave me some options, some tools that not everyone had. And I, I also always felt lucky that, you know, I, I have a, I'm one of five kids and I wasn't the only child in my family that was abused. And so of the, of the five of us, though, I, I I was a fighter. My, the sister who was next in line to me was was a pleaser. She wanted to please people and I wanted to fight them. I wasn't, I I wasn't going to try to please them so they wouldn't hurt me. I was going to, prevent them from hurting me by fighting them. So I was a real fighter and I, and I had, I had the brains and I had, I had that fighting attitude. In fact, one of the things in EMDR, I wasn't going to do it at first. I didn't want to give up my defenses and my 
therapist had to talk to me really hard about about how I could actually do better <laughs> without all of these all of these defenses. You know, you, I I had I had found a way to protect myself from life, and I was unwilling for a while to take a chance on a different way. Um, thank goodness, I'm mean, again was really lucky that he talked me into it, and I lucky that I had that therapist who gave that to me. So. so my attitude throughout my life has been that I've been really lucky, really lucky. Do you do you recognize yourself in harmony? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the first time I met Harmony was at was at a restaurant in San Francisco, right? Yeah, and um, and uh, I just liked her so much. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, she harmony is you. You know, you're so you're you know you're so spiritual and and you're so smart and you're so you you've you know so much about philosophy and Buddhism and yoga and all this stuff you know and ballet and art and music <laughs> and everything you know. Um, I yeah, mean, but it's I, the I it's the fighting spirit, ma. It's, like, it's, the, yeah. it's the it's the killer instinct. That's well. I, I remember one time, one of the first times she was here, you know, and she and something was going on. She was in the house with you and I, you know, and, and I don't know what you were doing, but, but but she got cranky, and she got really cranky at you in front of me, and I was like, "Yes, go harmony," you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know. I remember when my uh, my football coach started punching me in public during a game, and uh, you you uh, you turned to your friend and said, "Only my son could make someone that mad." <laughs> I, I think that's one of your stories. <laughs> no, yeah. no, or is that I've forgotten at least. Anyway, no. yeah, um, yeah. But um, well, you we're have gonna... an enormous ability to do that. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna. <laughs> We're going to have to to close this up. And so what happens okay. here is that we we all uh, Harmony's going to take us out and then she's going to play Nick's music. So you have to stay really quiet during that. Okay? <laughs> and then no, we'll let you know when you can start talking again, okay? Okay. All right. Do you have anything I, I, to finish up with, Harm? Uh, well, we're just so happy that you shared your story with us and shared yourself with us and this time and came on our podcast to enlighten our listeners with your experience and your wisdom. And so thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for asking me. I think that the more that people share their stories, maybe the fewer stories there will be to share. You know, I think it's important to get stuff out there. And I love you both very much. And so I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Love you too, Mom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing.